0: It's at least the seventh attack on an Asian-American in recent days across the city.
1: 36-year-old Asian man, sources say, stabbed in the back in an unprovoked attack. Another Asian-owned business in Fairfax County was
2: targeted for crime. They could have been my grandparents or my family member or anyone you know so that's why that's why we have to step up a game and come come together join as one it almost seems like
3: racism is kind of coming back for some reason come flu. two other victims of Oakland's chinatown and now the attention is on us but this is nothing new we demand
4: justice america is a melting pot
5: we shouldn't be hating on each other we should love one, one another and love you. our neighbors love our community
4: Hello, I'm Vicky Wynn. thank you for joining us. For the past year, many of us have been concerned about two viruses, the coronavirus and the racism virus. We're not only worried about our health, but our safety as well, with reports of attacks against Asian Americans, both physical and verbal, dominating our social media pages. Was anyone other than our own community hearing us, seeing us? As we celebrated the Lunar New Year, our pain finally gained more attention After a spate of violent attacks against elderly Asian Americans was caught on camera, igniting a new generation to speak up and to speak out. In the next hour, we are tackling how the community is coping. The conversations taking place inside the homes of Asian Americans across this country. The toll it's taking on us mentally and the impact it's having financially. And finally, the movement. How do we move forward with a stronger sense of belonging and unity? I'll be joined by an esteemed group of panelists, from community organizers to celebrities, including Margaret Cho, Jeremy Lin, and Olivia Munn, to civil rights activist and 2019 Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Amanda Nguyen. Join the conversation with the hashtag, the racism virus. But first, how did we get here?
5: The FBI recently issued a warning about a
6: potential spike in hate crimes. And disturbing rise in attacks on Asian Americans. After a
2: recent string of attacks against Asian Americans coast to coast. We've been covering
4: this for nearly a year now. Anti-Asian sentiment playing out from coast to coast.
3: A gentleman approached me and started yelling racial slurs at me. You dirty Chinese. You damn Chinese. This is you. You dirty Chinese. And he just kept saying that over and over again. Get out of our
6: country! Yeah! Ah! The Chinese virus and the fight
5: against the Chinese virus, it's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. I have never seen Asian Americans this scared. Uh, I've never seen them this animated.
0: I, I've talked to people who said they're, they're in fear for their life.
7: Asian Americans Targeted. We have seen everything from cashiers who will tell somebody, "I'm not going to serve you because I don't want to catch coronavirus." We've also seen um, patients who have gone into health clinics who say, "I don't want you as a nurse. I want somebody else to help me." They started calling me "ching ching,"
8: uh, "Chinese virus," just all sort of, all sorts of nasty stuff.
4: Stop AAPI hate. Recorded more than 2,800 anti-Asian incidents in a 10-month period. Even after this tweet from then President Trump, it is very important that we totally protect our Asian American community in the United States and all around the world. And now nearly a year into the pandemic, a new president and a new pledge.
9: I'm directing federal agencies to combat the resurgence of xenophobia. This is unacceptable, and it's on America.
4: Still, the attacks continue. In February, 18 incidents in a two-week period in the San Francisco Bay Area including the senseless killing of 84-year-old Thai immigrant Vicha Pakti. We matter, and racism is killing us.
8: We are a
6: community that's under attack.
4: According to the NYPD, hate crimes against Asian Americans in New York City are up 800%. Everyday people now rising up, lending a helping hand. Hundreds volunteered to chaperone Asian elders. Let's do this together and let's stand for Asians. Thousands more rallied in demonstrations to say enough is enough.
2: If you can learn to not be afraid and not to just bury your own pain, you'll see that there are so many people in the world who want to help us.
4: Now to the conversation about what's happening in our communities and why, so that we can figure out how to stop the hate with real and lasting solutions. I want to start with our first panel of guests. Joining me now is NBC Asian America reporter Kimmy Yem, and Dr. Russell Jung, co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. So let me start with the numbers. Um, 2,800 first-hand accounts of anti-Asian hate that were recorded by Stop AAPI Hate between March and December of last year. Dr. Jung, talk to people about how your organization tracks these anti-Asian incidents and why it is that you're not reporting them to police.
10: We
5: started last year collecting data um, firsthand, primary source accounts because we knew the racism was widespread, that it was becoming institutionalized in policies. And that we wanted to hold government accountable. Um, it's been a horrific year, as we read time and time again how people have cast us out as foreigners, have um, called us in a variety of ways—not just hate crimes, yelling and screaming at us, profanities and slurs, um, mistreating us at the workplace and violating our civil rights, cyberbullying and looking at schools. So. Um, We began tracking because we wanted to get the breadth of racism and actually get to the roots of racism that's been a long violence in America.
4: Yeah, you can't manage what you don't measure. Kimmy, I want to bring you into the conversation. You wrote an article that really resonated and also hit some nerves for folks. It's called Violence Against Asian Americans and Why Hate Crime Should Be Used Carefully. Talk about what a hate crime is, that legal definition, and also why did you feel it was important to write about that distinction?
10: Um yeah thank you for having me Vicky um From jump, I do wanna say, as you've been uh, mentioning and as Dr. Jung mentioned, a lot of the incidents we've been seeing throughout the pandemic has been a reflection of the heightened anti-Asian sentiment um, that Asian Americans have been attacked for. There's been this perpetuation of this racist link between Asian Americans and the virus. Um, The piece specifically dealt with the attacks we've been seeing this year on our elders um, in Chinatowns. And, you know, it is important to make a distinction whether or not, um, you know, what these crimes are and exactly what they're being investigated for. Most of these attacks have not been found to be racially motivated, or thus far there's no evidence that there has been. Um, I think that there's a little bit of... uh, a confusion in that if something doesn't get a hate crime distinction, that doesn't necessarily mean that race doesn't play into it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as people of color here, I think all of us can say that there's barely any interactions in which we could say that race doesn't touch an issue. I think there's very, very few circumstances in which, you know, race doesn't factor into it. And experts say that, you know, there could be racial profiling involved. There may not be a motivation of of racial animus, but people could start certainly be profiled because they're seen as easier targets or they're seen as more lucrative targets. Um, you know, context is incredibly important here too. And people are pointing out that right now we are in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of these attacks are occurring in Chinatowns, which are often in low income areas that have been hit particularly difficult or particularly hard by the virus. Um, and so, you know, there is there are different responses to um, economic deprivation, and then you know, opportunity could also factor into it. I mm-hmm. think that you know, experts really stress that it's important we don't you know self-diagnose or misdiagnose what the issue is. Um, in a lot of these cases, attackers are people of color. Um, They're from black and brown communities. We know that the justice system isn't colorblind. Um, We also know that, you know, misdiagnosing something like this could inflame tensions between communities or, you know, kind of create this idea that one community is targeting another when that may not be the case. Um, Ultimately, experts really say that if we aren't looking into what the actual root of the problem is and being accurate with this, the Asian American community is not any safer.
4: And Dr. John, I want to bring you in because that was a point that Kimmy made in the piece, and I think some people commented that they felt like it gaslit the Asian American community. I hope this helps to clarify why you felt it was necessary to talk about hateful acts or incidents that may not be actually rising to the level of a distinction of hate crime, but doesn't make them any less painful. You're not trying to discount that experience or say that it shouldn't be investigated. Uh, Dr. Jung, do you think that mislabeling actually does make it harder to keep the AAPI community safe? I think Kimmy's right that misdiagnosing the issue um, is a disservice.
5: um, The focus on hate crimes is maybe just a band-aid to this problem of racism that's widespread um over 90 percent of the incidents we received don't rise up to the level of crimes are still traumatizing our respondents are experiencing racial trauma it's like we're under a state of siege where people are hyper vigilant they're actually avoiding locations and so um we we think that the focus on hate crime again is limited and we'd rather get at the roots of both the racism that we're seeing from last year that was stoked by the political rhetoric addressing um, that perpetual foreigner stereotype that casts Asians as outsiders, that type of racism has, you know, led to racist policies like Chinese exclusion, Japanese right. American immigration. And so we really um, want to get at the roots rather than um, just addressing some of the downstream
4: And I know that your um, group has just received one and a half million dollars to help track hate incidents and to help stop them out there in California and beyond. Dr. Russell John M, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, actress Olivia Munn has been a key player in amplifying these issues, using her celebrity to raise awareness of the anti-Asian sentiment. Earlier I had a chance to speak with her about this newfound activism. Did you ever think you'd be the catalyst to help propel this into the national conversation, the way that it is now, and what do you think of the
2: response? I don't think that you ever think that um, you're going to to be part of something like this, but um, I'm extremely grateful that the people have really responded. This week, you came out in support of Teen
4: Vogue staffers who were concerned about offensive old tweets from their new editor-in-chief, tweets that she made back in 2011, tweets that she apologized for in 2019. Let me read one of the tweets that people are really reacting to. She wrote, Googling how to not wake up with swollen Asian eyes. People, we give people grace and room to
2: grow, but I wonder what you make of language like this, especially when it comes from people in powerful positions. That was a tough one for me the last couple of days. I I have to be honest. I uh, wrestled with that one a lot. We've all said silly things, and she was 17 at the time. So um, I definitely think there, you know, is a, a lot that we have to kind of give her some grace on for that. But those Comments are hard to read because, you know, I remember growing up and having people tease me for my mom's Asian eyes, for my Asian eyes, and it, it's, um, it's a triggering thing to read. I think she should be judged more on how she's taking the responsibility today, and I think it's important for people to hear her say that these were racist comments, and there is nothing excusable about it. Do you think there is a call to action here for other folks in the entertainment industry? I will say that it has been really disappointing to uh, see how quiet everyone has been. Um, There's a lot of beauty brands, big companies, uh, celebrities, everybody that was denouncing hate crimes against black people in our country. And they were saying that they were anti-racist. However, when we have targets on the asian community right now and there are elders in our community that are dying these violent deaths because the pandemic was weaponized against us and everyone is staying silent that is really hard for me to swallow right now i'm having a really tough time you know if you are anti-racist you are you have to be against what's happening to asian americans right now
4: and up next beyond the pain and scars of racism comes the cost in dollars and cents economic impact when we come back.
5: This group of volunteers recently started patrolling the area because of attacks against Asians. The whole neighborhood is under siege.
9: People beat you up. People rob you every day. At least 10 to 15 cases, just within a few blocks here.
7: Criminals know
11: that Chinatown is a community that deals with cash primarily. The people come out and they pull
0: cash out of the banks and stuff, and so they're just prime targets. An immigrant assistance group, Society of Hearts Delight, that first approach police, call it a big first step.
12: They understand right now, police really take uh, hate speeches and hate crimes uh, seriously.
11: Police can be seen as a sign of trouble, and we just want to get that across the board, like,
0: hey, we're just here to build relationship.
4: The recent attacks on the Asian American community aren't just taking a physical and emotional toll. It's economic as well. NBC News business and technology correspondent Joe Kent joins us now with more on the effects this has had on Asian American business owners and what it's doing to their bottom line. Joe.
12: Hey, Vicky, the economic impact is real. In fact, here in the U.S., a lot of small business owners tell me that they started feeling the economic pain back in January and February of 2020, before the pandemic hit the United States. And if you do the math, that's a lot, which is snowballed into more than a year of economic challenges. For many Asian-owned businesses, the pandemic has triggered two crises at once. A surge in racism coupled with the struggle to stay afloat. Do you get a sense that you're getting hit with a double whammy of both the racism and the business impact, a negative business impact?
0: Absolutely. It's double whammy, triple whammy.
12: In New York City, Xi'an Famous food CEO Jason Wang says he's been forced to change the way he does business due to hateful attacks on his Asian staff.
0: One is involving employee going to work in the morning. And we're talking about 9 a.m., uh, usually rush hour, uh, broad daylight, uh, where he was punched. The second attack was a woman, a female employee, who was attacked right after work, uh, about to get home in the subway system as well. She was punched and, uh, again, unprovoked, random attack.
12: According to analysis by McKinsey, Asian-American-owned businesses were some of the earliest to suffer because of misguided fears about Asian communities nationwide. In fact, Asian-American unemployment shot up by more than 450% from February to June last year, faster than other racial groups. Now, many of those jobs have come back, but concerns remain. What have you had to do as a business owner to keep your employees safe?
0: We always want to do what is right for our employees. So we decided to preemptively close all of our restaurants earlier than usual. So we, we closed at 8.30 for all stores. Stores used to close at 9.30, 10.30, depending on the location. And we also closed Sundays in the entire day.
12: In Rifle, Colorado, Jack Chen, the owner of Shanghai Garden, says he's had to fight off unsubstantiated xenophobic rumors that his restaurant was importing food from China that carried COVID-19.
9: Yeah, people saying the Chinese food, and uh, it's from uh, China. So the China have uh, coronavirus. Don't bring the food uh, to this community. And we don't want to get sick. But our food is all have to U.S. Stem. Always order from uh, food distributor. Denver, they are trucked here every week.
12: Chen, who's owned his restaurant since 2014, says the combination of lockdowns and racism caused business to drop 25%. Chen,
8: people call me. Uh, uh, there is a virus coming. Don't talk to him you're gonna get sick
12: in New York Xi'an famous foods is grappling with similar challenges when you have to take these measures as a business how does this impact your bottom line
0: honestly uh, when we think about these measures that we take as business the bottom line is not our priority it really is about what's gonna make our staff feel safe
12: when you have to close early what does that do to your restaurant business
0: our restaurants have already been suffering because of the pandemic uh, but In addition to the pandemic, our limited hours put us at an even lower amount of sales volume. I would say right now, our restaurants are operating around 20 to 30% of what it used to be. We're not making anything. We're actually losing tens of thousands of money every month, and meanwhile, just survive. It's not about making money right now. It's just about survival. You know, we're just seeing, hoping for better days
12: these heartbreaking stories from business owners across the country have one central theme. They just want to get through and make sure they can get to the other side of this while making their voices heard. And Vicky, the numbers are real. According to the National Bureau of Economic Research, the number of AAPI-owned businesses actually dropped 26 percent from February to April of last year. And the numbers are expected to be worse once we get the data for the end of last year as well.
4: Joe Lincoln, thank you so much for that insightful look at the impact on our local businesses. Really appreciate it. Now, when it comes to big business, we are seeing more and more companies speaking out against hate. Familiar brands like Ben & Jerry's, Nike, Adidas, Peloton, and Pepsi, along with leaders like Apple CEO Tim Cook, have issued statements in recent weeks in solidarity with the Asian American community. But is it enough? Does more need to be done to make a real impact? For more on all this, I want to welcome Eric Toda. He is a marketing executive at Facebook. And Benny Liu, he's the founder and CEO of Next Shark. That's a media company focused on sharing news about Asian-American issues. Thank you both for being here. Eric, first to you. You have an opinion piece in Adweek that's getting a lot of attention. In it, you wrote about the model minority myth and how the perceived success of the Asian-American community has made it Raceless. you went on to say that this myth has turned other communities against us as we have been inappropriately placed on a pedestal can you talk about what you've experienced in your own life and career that inspired you to write this
3: yeah for sure um what inspired me to write this was uh watching the super bowl i'm in the marketing and advertising industry and so the super bowl is a big moment for me uh, just because i see the best of brands i see the brands that i worked with um And what I realized during the Super Bowl was that many messages were hopeful. Many messages were about we got past November, now we move on, and now we have a brighter future. This was right after a week of five straight attacks against the Asian American community. Five straight attacks, and not just about, and not just attacking young people like me and Benny. I'm talking about elderly people. And so I took it upon myself to write that piece to call out to the industry everything is not okay you could have used one of those 30 second spots easily pivoted which i've done before in the past easily pivoted um to call out and say we condemn all acts of violence all acts of racism especially against the asian american community to at least put a spotlight on it because at that time at that time during the super bowl no one was talking about it and so i wrote the piece to hopefully gain more awareness but also encourage uh, my peers in the industry to act.
4: And what's been the response? Are you getting the response that you wanted and what more needs to be done?
3: I think like you mentioned, there has been a very positive response. Uh, a lot of actions have been taken, um, but I think we're, we're slowly getting to the point and I'm not, I'm not just talking about the Asian-American community. I'm talking about all minority communities. We're getting past the point of being okay with just a post, with just a statement. We want action here. We want action, tangible action that isn't just supporting the Asian-American community internally in these corporations, but all minority communities. Because the fact is we're not going to be the last. We weren't the first. And it will always come back to this conversation. And so what, my, what I'm asking is um, – For the employees, for the leadership of all these brands and companies, look inside yourself and ask yourself, is a post enough? Likely isn't. Uh, We want to see action. We want to know how you're supporting uh, your internal groups, how you're providing them with resources, and really, how are you providing them a forum? to Have these conversations, because these conversations are uncomfortable, but they're necessary for change.
4: Speaking of forums, I want to talk to Benny. You founded Next Shark back in 2013, and today it has exploded into one of the leading sources for news for the AAPI community. Why do you think that that, that is? Was there a void there that you helped to fill, and how? what do you attribute this growth to?
11: Yeah, I mean, you know, so for me, I grew up in the Bay Area, you know, suffered, you know, racism and discrimination growing up, you know, was bullied in school for my race, and so Asian American identity was something that was very close to my heart. However, uh, you know, Nick Shark started off as a uh, business and uh, business site focused on young people. Um, about two years there, we saw a um, big increase in uh, interest in Asian-centric content, and every time we feature like an Asian face, a Asian American business leader of some sort, we notice an uptick in engagement, and uh, so it was a kind of like a slow pivot, um, and uh, it was definitely a very gratifying pivot because I felt that I was really um, helping advance our community forward, um, and we, just, we basically you know, have been doing it for the last five years, and it was kind of interesting to see this trajectory of covering um, all these incredible strides that our community was making, from the success of Fresh Off the Boat, to Crazy Rich Asians, to uh, Andrew Yank's surprising pre- presidential campaign run, um, to suddenly seeing this, like, you know, uh, the shift of, uh, you know, and started last year, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, where um, you saw these this huge increase in, um, you know, alleged hate crimes and anti-Asian rhetoric. And seeing that shift, especially for us in the newsroom, has been very, like, you know, daunting and has been, you know, hitting us on a very personal level.
4: Yeah, it is different to experience that and also to be covering it as well. Talk to me about the tips that are coming in. Are you seeing an uptick? And, and how is your coverage evolving? Because you have to be careful about what you're putting on. You don't want to continue to trigger people and only cover the traumatic incidents. I think we're all looking for good news and uplifting news, too.
11: Yeah, um, that's a very good question. Um, You know, we... I would say prior to the pandemic last year, we were really only getting one to two news news tips a week through a general mailbox. And a lot of these incidences, um, you know, was not enough for us to really follow through with, you know, not enough info, you know, sources not wanting to come out. And uh, since, uh, you know, from the start of the pandemic, uh, it, it went from one to two to up to, you know, 50 a day through, you know. You know, DMs on our platform to emails, Um, and it kind of dropped off. I would say sometime, you know, last summer, but uh, lately, especially, you know, almost like a year, you know, exactly a year later, we're seeing this like, you know, it's it's like we're hitting uh, another, uh, you know, big uh, trend, which is um, extremely concerning. And you know, for us, I, I think that. Uh, us as media, I mean, we're always thinking about, um, you know, how we can continue evolving and, you know, what is our responsibility to our readers as well. And, you know, and so little things like we understand that a lot of the reporting that we've been doing, you know, can, can be a lot of traumatic content. And so it's gotten to the point where we're even, you know, posting messages on our Instagram saying, hey, you know, it, it, I know that these things are tough to view. And so if you need to pause us for a little bit or even unfollow us for a little bit, you know, to take a little bit of a mental health break, we, you know, we totally understand.
4: Yeah, we're going to talk about mental health a little later in this hour. Thank you, Benny. And I just want to hit really quickly, a 2018 report by Deloitte found that Asians and Pacific Islanders make up less than 4% of board leadership in Fortune 500 companies. Eric, some people call this the bamboo ceiling. So talk to me about what needs to be done to get more Asian Americans in leadership roles like you. You're a high up there at Facebook, and that platform has gone a long way.
3: I mean, honestly, the the biggest thing that I've been telling every single leader that's reached out is take a look at your executive ranks. Take a look at who you're promoting, pathways you're giving them, and are they perpetuating the model minority myth? And what I mean – so let me unpack that for a little bit. The model minority myth states that if you just keep your head down, work hard, don't speak up, don't challenge, um, you'll find some level of social economic success. And there are many people in executive positions that have been promoted just for that, which then sets a bad precedent for young people like myself, like Benny, who come into the industry, see that probably don't subscribe to it, but then understand they have to conform to it to succeed. What I'm asking business leaders to do right now is say don't don't perpetuate the mall minority myth. Encourage your employees to speak up and give a pathway to those willing to challenge, give a pathway to those willing to speak up and speak their mind versus just keeping their head down. And so I think the more that we do that, the more that that myth will slowly break down over time um, so then more people like me and like Benny can be in impactful leadership positions.
4: Eric Toda and Benny Liu, thank you so much for your valuable insight into the corporate side of things. We really appreciate it. Up next, the mental toll. NBA player Jeremy Lin joins us for a frank conversation on the name-calling he still faces on and off the court. And later, actress and comedian Margaret Cho on what Hollywood can do.
6: I know plenty of uh, Asian Americans who feel very unsafe today, including my parents, uh, who live in California. And they have been in their homes for a year because of fear of getting COVID. And now there's hope for a vaccine and they're they're afraid of going outside because of the huge number of attacks on Asian-American and
5: specifically the elders. When I see the violence against elderly people walking down the street, I think about how that could be my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, my father. I worry about violence all around us with our neighbors. It is very personal something I worry about as a father raising two baby boys, Asian-American baby boys, here in this country.
1: Taking a shot at our elders,
12: you know, grandpas and grandmas, is not okay. That's not healing. That's
4: not what America is about. At 30, Jeremy Lin was the first Asian-American to be part of a winning NBA championship team. Now he's making headlines for sharing what he recently was called on the court coronavirus. Jeremy and I recently talked about how that felt, and he also shared something many of us can relate to, that the bullying and name calling started early. I remember kids like pretending to speak Chinese, I'm Vietnamese. And this a stuff as a kid, you know it's wrong, but for me, I didn't actually know exactly why it was wrong. We didn't talk about discrimination or racism in my house. And I wonder for you, what was your experience? What what are your earliest memories of feeling like you were being bullied or discriminated against because of your race?
9: I mean, that's such a great way to, to describe it. I, I knew something was different, right? Because of basketball and because of school, I went. I became friends with a whole other, you know, group of
8: people. It was, you know, me being surrounded by all Asians and then me being the
9: only Asian. And, you know, I'm walking down and people are like, look at that, that's Yao Ming, or go back to China, or or you're a Chinese import or things like that. And then it got even worse as I got into college and people calling me, you know, uh, chicken chow mein or can you even see the scoreboard with those eyes or, you know, even calling me and stuff like that. And so there's been so much centered around just like realizing as I continue to play basketball and play at a higher and higher level that, wow, the, the viewpoint
4: of who I am is very much centered around what I look like how did you as a young person deal with it and is it different than how you deal with
9: it now definitely i mean it used to get me fired up you know i ended up losing a super crucial game in college and i played terrible and we got blown out and it was the biggest game of the season and it's because in the first quarter i kept getting called repeatedly and then i just started playing out of my mind in terms of just like not in a good way in terms of just running people over putting my head and just i lost control And that's when I realized my assistant coach at the time, Kenny Blake, and he explained to me his experiences as as an African-American trying to play at Duke and what that was like. And so for me, it just really challenged my perspective to see that when people come in and they say those things, they're trying to get you out of your element.
4: Someone called you coronavirus on the court. And I want to ask you, was this during a game? What exactly happened? And then how did you respond in the moment or did you
9: even respond in the moment? It happened during the game, but at this point, I'm not really that shocked at anything. And so, for me, I think it was more just honestly, I just kept playing, um, and I didn't think much about it. And I wrestled with whether to talk about it, whether to bring it up, and things like that. But one thing that I think is that what I'm, what you know, that, that's verbal, and that's something that happened may happen on the court, but. I think what I'm trying to do is bring awareness to what is happening off the court, to people, to the elderly, to, to important people that we love and in our community.
4: But you've also made the decision not to name or shame anyone. So two questions. I think you said you were not surprised that this was still happening in 2021. But can you explain why you don't think it's important to, to point the finger at someone and to, to hold someone accountable in this particular incident?
9: Because for me, I think it's all about solidarity. The message I'm trying to promote is empathy and compassion. When it comes to empathy, compassion, grace, I mean, that's to me the only way that we're going to do something together, right? This, this is not Asians versus another people group. We're bringing people together.
4: I read on your Instagram, you posted a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You said, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Why did that stick with you? Why did that resonate with you? And, you know, how do you carry that out?
9: because life isn't meant to be lived alone. I mean, I think we're wired for love, we're wired for relationship, and we're wired for community. I'm not even trying to ask Asians to only do it on our own. Like, that's not how it's gonna get done. And we need minority groups to empathize and sympathize with other minority groups. We need the minority and the majority to start to converse more, to, to hear more, to talk more. Appreciate
4: that, Jeremy. While a crisis within a crisis, the rise in anti-Asian-American incidents since the onset of the pandemic is taking a devastating toll on mental health. A recent study published in Ethnic and Racial Studies finds Asian-Americans who experience COVID-related discrimination have higher levels of anxiety and depression. Joining me now is Dr. Jenny Wang, a clinical psychologist and the founder of the Asians for Mental Health Community. Actor Brian T., who plays emergency department chief, Dr. Ethan Choi on the NBC series Chicago Med. And Yul Kwan, the first Asian-American winner of the hit reality TV show, Survivor. Thank you all for being here. So we all just heard Jeremy talking about some of his early experiences with racism. Uh, Dr. Wang, let me start with you. What do we know about the long-term effects this has on mental health when it starts at such a young age, too?
1: I think that for Asian-Americans, a lot of these ideas of racial trauma are largely maybe new or unnamed. And so I think for a lot of parents who are trying to help their children understand what they're seeing on the news, or even experiences that they may be having at school, um, we're looking at, you know, increases of depression, anxiety, fear, even things like school refusal, right, being bullied at school resulting in them not feeling safe. And there's also a sense of It's difficulties understanding racial identity because our parents may not be equipped to talk to their children about these topics. And so we're looking at a situation where students are unable to really put name and words to these experiences. Dr. Wang, how
4: do we help? What do we do? How do we have these conversations?
1: The first thing to do for parents is to start talking about them. Right, We want to convey to our children that, one, they are safe, that adults are willing and wanting to help them process and understand what's going on. And then if parents don't know how to even begin the conversation, that we tell our children that we will figure this out together and that it is a process of learning. And there are so many resources now being created to help parents talk to their children about race.
4: Brian, you talk about how your moment of racial reckoning didn't come until later when you started your Hollywood career. Why is that? Was there a new awareness that came to who you are and and the fact that there's a lack of representation?
8: I I think all of those things. I think, one, there is a lack of representation. And when I came into the industry, it was really realized. I, I, I grew up in a utopia, as I've mentioned before. And It was very, very easy for me to assimilate because we lived in a very multicultural community. And it wasn't until I got into the industry that I realized how Asian I was. And I needed to fit into this box of these particular characters, tropes, or stereotypes that only I should and could play. So that was my first inclination of, of my true identity or how people actually saw me.
4: How are things changing for you? Because I know you said you've turned down countless roles that were very stereotypical, and now you feel like there's more space being made for Asian-American representation.
8: I think definitely there's a a shift, for sure. I think, you know, I have um, Blessed, been able to play a particular character that is non-stereotypical. You know, that is a leading man-esque, maybe hero type, and I've never seen that growing up when I was a kid. So there's definitely more opportunities out there, and I think more storytellers changing the perspective and creating these particular characters is moving the needle further along. I just think there needs to be much more of it.
4: Asian parents would approve because you are still playing a doctor after all. You will let me bring you into this. How did this feeling of, you all know exactly what I'm talking about, how did this feeling of being an other, you know, when you were growing up, affect you? And you also grew up in a very diverse area, of the Bay Area, right?
6: I did. I grew up in uh, the East Bay in California, but uh, despite living in a fairly diverse community, I I got bullied quite a bit uh, because of my ethnicity. Uh, I remember for years, every Christmas, uh, we'd wake up to find that our Christmas lights had been smashed by kids in the neighborhood. Uh, and one time, uh, our t- house had been t- teepeed and kids repainted on the sidewalk. My uncle here. Um, I had a pretty severe bullying incident uh, when I was in elementary school. That ended up affecting me for most of my life and really contributed towards some mental health issues. Um, when I was, I think, in second grade, uh, the older white kids would bully a lot of the younger uh, minority kids in the bathroom. And what they would try to do is they try to grab us and hold us against the wall while they would take turns pissing on us. And that gave me uh, this fear of going to public restrooms, and I developed a condition known as paruresis, which is known as shy bladder syndrome. And for most of my life, I could never go to the bathroom in public spaces, and this ended up dominating every aspect of my life. My entire day would be planned around whether I could go to a bathroom. So I often wouldn't go to ball games or parties or to the mall or movies because I was so afraid I wouldn't be able to go to the bathroom. And I think a lot of my kind of early trauma really got me to think deeply about why it is that i was bullied why i felt this way why i felt alienated and you know i think there are lots of reasons for this but i also felt that the absence of asian american role models in the media played a large role in it growing up you know i didn't see a lot of people from our community on television and media playing kind of leadership roles whenever you did see them they're typically portrayed according to these very one-dimensional stereotypes and so for me that was one of the reasons when i eventually got the opportunity I, i ended up going on a reality show because i figured The good thing about a reality show is that it's not scripted, so despite why I was cast on the show, even though I felt like I was cast as a stereotype, once it got on there, I didn't have to read a script that someone else wrote for me. I could be myself.
4: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Tell me, that is really personal and painful, what you just shared. How were you able to overcome and get to where you are now?
6: Yeah, it was a very long journey. I, you know, I developed severe social anxiety issues. It wasn't just the shy bladder syndrome. I, I had this social sweating condition where anytime I felt like anyone was looking at me, I would just completely break down in this heavy sweat. And that itself became so embarrassing that I started trying to hide people. Um, I never fully overcame these issues. I mean, even to this day, it's something that I still deal with, but I've learned to cope with it. Uh, one thing that I found to be helpful is the fact just talking about these issues I spent most of my life trying to hide them from my family from my friends from my coworkers, and I never sought help because I was so afraid that I'd be judged in the Asian American community there's such a heavy stigma against mental health issues psychological health issues I felt like I had to be perfect in front of my parents and I was afraid to let them know that I was struggling
4: well thank you You, uh, Dr. Wang I just want to finish up quickly with you Asian Americans were already considered a high-risk group for mental health illnesses They're also less likely to seek help, as you just alluded to, two to three times less likely to seek mental health and help than white people. According to the American Psychological Association, what are the barriers to asking for help and what can we do if we are feeling some of this trauma right now?
1: I think one of the things that really is a struggle for Asian Americans is that we have been socialized or taught to not listen to our emotions. And right now, a lot of us are experiencing a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and potentially a lot of anger around what is going on. And so one of the most important things we can do is to begin having those conversations with individuals we feel safe with and realizing that there's no shame in asking for help. And in fact, proactively asking for help is how we move through a lot of the racial trauma that many of us have suppressed for a very long time.
4: Dr. Jenny Wang and Brian T, you have a powerful op-ed that just came out in deadline. I would encourage folks to read that. Yul Kwan, thank you all so much for talking about this very important topic. Well, up next, how a violent attack against an elderly woman triggered a compassionate community response in Oakland, and actress and comedian Margaret Cho on how she's using her fame to fight the hate. Stay with us.
10: More than a year ago, I wrote that this
2: anti-Asian hate is not new.
10: It's really been terrifying for our community. If we as a country do nothing, the attacks will get worse. And I'm sad to say that I was right. Yes, we are a divided society, and intolerance poisons all of our communities. We must stand together against prejudice and hate towards anyone. If we can learn from history, we can stop repeating it, and then we can bend the arc of history toward justice together.
4: california home to the nation's oldest chinatown has seen a speed of violent attacks particularly against asian seniors but now residents are taking matters into their own hands hundreds volunteering to chaperone asian seniors as part of a group called compassion in oakland jessica oh young is one of its co-founders and she joins me now jessica talk to me a little bit about what what was behind this how did you get so many people to participate
7: Yeah, hi, thank you so much. Uh, Yeah, we are just in Oakland, Chinatown. We're just a small, Oakland, Chinatown is a really small four-by-four area block. And we um, are really close to a lot of freeways. There's a lot of surrounding businesses. Um, And we all started by a viral social media post by Jacob Azevedo. And he posted because he felt so compelled um, to act. Because of what was happening to the seniors in our community, and he received thousands of responses. One of those responses was myself and uh, three other other of the now leaders, and we um, were actually all strangers before this, and um, we had a common goal uh, to protect our elders. And um, now we have seven over seven hundred people that have signed up to volunteer. Uh, we've been out for about four weeks, um, patrolling the area, chaperoning different seniors, um, letting the seniors know about our services.
4: Jessica, it sounds like social media played a huge role in kind of uniting all of these strangers, but what would be your advice to other folks who would like to do this in their own communities? What have you learned so far, and you know, how can people be successful?
7: Yeah, uh, my advice would definitely be to, to act. To just start, um, to not be afraid to speak up and gather just a few friends and you, you know, would never know what will happen um, and that spark, will, what, what, what that spark will do. So my advice is just to start to act, um, you know, walk around with a couple friends.
4: Jessica O. Young with Compassion in Oakland. Thank you so much. Thank you. So how do we keep the momentum going? Let's bring in our panel of Asian-American pioneers who are using their platforms to urge action against this rise in anti-Asian sentiment. Joining me now, actress and comedian Margaret Cho. She plays Auntie Ling in the animated Netflix film Over the Moon. And Amanda Nguyen, the founder of Rise, a national civil rights nonprofit. And she was the 2019 Nobel Prize nominee. Amanda, let's start with you. This pandemic, as we know, has fueled this surge in some of these anti-Asian hate incidents and violence. But for you and me and many in this community, this is not new. You are calling for systemic change, looking back at the history of Asian invisibility in the US. Talk about what you mean by that, and also what's the role that school and education
13: plays in this? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on a panel with such incredible pioneers and legends. I think at the heart of this is invisibility. Right. this idea that a whole group of people have been scapegoated because our humanity has been erased, and it has been erased in a systematic way, in a structural way, from the government to our education, to polling about whether or not our vote matters, and critically to our stories being told in Hollywood and in the news. All of these places help to humanize people's stories, and we are not a part of that equation. That's why I have, and so many other people have come out to say, enough is enough. We are going to show up. We are not going to be silent anymore. And that is because we are being attacked by the community, and we are saying, it's time. We are going to speak up.
4: Yeah, and I know your video, which has been viewed millions of times, it was certainly a catalyst for some of the conversation that we're having right now. Margaret, Asian-Americans have long felt a sense of invisibility, as Amanda was talking about. You, I remember you're one of the first ones to represent in mainstream media on the entertainment side. What have you seen since then? And talk to us about what more you think needs to happen when it comes to seeing Asian-Americans on screen as they are, not just feeling caricatures or certain stereotypes. I think it's so important to really talk about visibility. And I
12: think that things have changed. But it's taken such a long time. I mean, my television show premiered 27 years ago, over a quarter of a century ago. And just now, we're starting to see more Asian Americans in TV shows, in movies, but on a very peripheral basis. And it's not exactly a stereotype, but we're not all super rich. And we're not all crazy rich. You know, it's not all playing empire, which I love those shows and movies. But at the same time, it enforces this stereotype or narrative is probably closer to it, that
4: we um, are untouchable and invisible, which is kind of a volatile combination when it comes to violence. Mm -hmm. Margaret, why can't say 27 years Asian, don't raisin, but three Asian American films are in theaters right now. Minari, just won a Golden Globe, Raya and the Last Dragon, and then Boogie. So these are really different movies, different portrayals of Asian Americans. How important is it to see this and... You know, you mentioned the frustration that it's taken so long to get here and there's so much more work to do. But what can we do? Are we voting with our dollars? What can consumers do? I think it's about supporting these films, supporting these artists,
12: supporting these actors, supporting this um, community, this culture, which is emerging.
4: And it's such an exciting time for these artists. Amanda, if you can, just come back to me and talk about the role of social media and how you and this next generation is able to leverage those kinds of platforms when you aren't seeing your stories told and how important that is.
13: Social media is such an incredible platform because it essentially democratizes our voices. It's one of the reasons why we are able to have this conversation right now.
2: When I look
13: to mainstream media to see whether or not our community stories were being told and found that they weren't, I turned to social media. And overnight, millions of people responded to it. Over 11.4 million people posted videos. um, And because of this incredible platform, people were able to say, hey, I wanna share my story too. For the first time, they felt like their grief their truth to be brought into light. And not only that, other communities said, hey, I'm going to stand in solidarity with you. And that was really critical.
4: Both of you trailblazing in two different ways in pre- and post-social media era. We are really grateful for, t- for you, Margaret Cho and Amanda Nguyen. Thanks so much. And now for the political reality check, California Congresswoman Judy Chu. She's the chairwoman of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Hello, Congresswoman Chu. I know you've had a busy time. Thanks for fitting us in. President Biden has signed this executive order to combat xenophobia against Asian Americans. Help us understand what exactly does this do, and is
14: it enough? This makes a world of difference. We spent a year, and I'm talking about the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, trying to get a meeting with the Department of Justice over this past year when anti-Asian hate crimes were on the increase due to President Trump's usage of the term China virus and Wuhan virus. Well, they ignored us for a whole year. Uh, So it was a huge thing when President Biden issued this executive order within the first week of his taking office. And it said that the Department of Justice needed to meet with the API community to uh, determine ways to combat these uh, anti-Asian hate crimes. So we set up a meeting right away. They've actually already come up with several solutions, including grants to law enforcement to combat hate crimes because there's a wide variation across different local law enforcement in terms of how they handle hate crimes.
4: And certainly it's not just about law enforcement. We hear a lot about restorative justice as well, educating people, making them aware. Uh, Can you talk about the No Hate Act and the status of that piece of legislation?
14: Yes, the No Hate Act uh, is a very important piece of legislation because currently our federal government fails in collecting hate crime statistics. In 1990, there was a law that said that the federal government needed to collect those uh, statistics but actually they rely on local law enforcement to give it to them. There's such a wide variation that uh, some local law enforcement don't report at all. In fact, three states don't even have a hate crime statute. So there needs to be continuity and uniformity in how these statistics are collected. And in fact, this bill, helps to, it helps to do that. Plus it also provides resources to local law enforcement to be able to create hate crime uh, programs and also to improve them.
4: Yeah, we know that data is important because without it, how do you know what's happening? Congresswoman Judy Chu, thank you for your time. Thank you. And our gratitude to the panelists who joined our discussion and shared their deeply personal experiences and insight. Thank you for watching the racism virus. This conversation is far from over. As painful as it is to see and to feel some of the anti-Asian sentiment surfacing in this country, there's also a lot of hope, people coming together and talking. And only when these conversations take place can there be a better understanding. Let's keep this dialogue going. Use the hashtag, the racism virus, to ask your questions and to share your thoughts. We can't drive out racism with racism. We need to show compassion and understanding. For NBC News, I'm Vicki Wen.